now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode three of The Drug Season, Just Science interviews Alex Kratulski, a research scientist, and Amanda Moore, a forensic scientist too, at the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education. Both discuss their NIJ-funded research titled Evaluating Trends in Novel Psychoactive Substances Using a Centennial Population of Electronic Dance Music Festival Attendees. Stay tuned as we answer some electronic dance music festival culture questions such as, what do the bracelets that the attendees wear really mean? How knowledgeable are attendees about the drugs they are taking? And many more. This episode was recorded at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences 2018 annual meeting where Alex presented the research at the NIJ R&D Symposium. If you missed his talk, please visit ForensicCOE.org to watch the archival. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Today, we're a part of the season on drugs. We've been delving into drugs in different ways. And today, we're going to be with a rather unusual study that's been done, unusual in a few different respects. One is that it's a study where people have been hanging out at, uh, what kind of uh, concert venue is it? It's an electronic dance music festival, which I'm sorry, I've just never been to one of those, and maybe it's just for the best based on your results. <laughs> and the other thing that's interesting, it's longitudinal study, which is kind of fun. Our guests are the PI for the study, uh, Mandy Moore, Amanda Moore, who uh, has a Master of Science from Arcadia University and was, uh, got her undergraduate in human biological sciences and sociology with an emphasis in criminology from the University of Montana. Are you from Montana? I am. Okay. So I'm back in my neck of the woods now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not too far away. We also have with us uh, Alex Krutolsky. And Alex uh, has a bachelor's in chemistry from Loyola University, New Orleans. And Alex also has a master's in forensic science from Arcadia University and is involved with a rather unusual research topic here that uh, they presented on yesterday at the uh, research symposium that NIJ does here at the American Academy each year. And their topic was evaluating trends in novel psychoactive substances using a sentinel population of electronic dance music festival attendees, which has been the subject of two NIJ grants. Thus far, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having yeah. us. So whose brainchild was this? Where did this come from? Uh, this is actually developed by our director, Dr. Barry Logan. So a few years ago, uh, he was down in Miami during one of the festivals, and it was right at the time where some of the oral fluid drug testing devices were starting to hit the market, the portable ones that you could test on site. And so he was down there with the police, and they were looking at potentially implementing this kind of drug testing device. So that was kind of the start of it, and then it morphed into, you know, could we make this a study where we could get real data from recreational users, get their perceptions, and then 
kind of have a broad approach into what we could do with it. We could disseminate it back to local emergency medicine populations to give them, you know, here's what users might be presenting with and, you know, better able to provide treatment. Give it back to users because there's this big misconception that they don't know what they're taking. So we wanted to see, you know, how much do they know about what drugs they're taking is what they say they're taking actually what they got. Also back to law enforcement, forensic science communities to help them develop methods that were current and relevant with respect to these novel psychoactive substances because there's such a high rate of turnover year after year, really impossible to keep up with the trends. So we wanted to be able to provide data back in real time. So a lot of attention's been paid, of course, on opioids, but of course, as most of the people who listen to Just Science know, because they're forensic scientists and they're up on things, that is really uh, just one aspect of the NPSs that are out there. There's a fairly broad variety of psychoactive substances that are emerging now, and, and you talk about some of them. At least you saw some fair amount of cathinones, for example, in that population, right? Yes, so that's traditionally the drugs that they're looking to take. When you look back at the, sort of the history of the NPS, it was kind of the synthetic cannabinoids and then it morphed into some of the synthetic um, cathinones and that's really what those users are going for. They're looking for something that's gonna provide them with increased energy, like a sense of euphoria, maybe some altered mind status and that's what they're looking for in that population. Sure. One of the things that we've been thinking about a lot as part of the, this podcast series on drugs is the whole issue of drug surveillance because some of the mechanisms that we have for drug surveillance really aren't that effective right now with the changes in, in kind of incidence. It's not quite as simple as uh, somebody's just having a new form of cocaine, right? It's a much broader kind of issues. And so one of the things you've had is, is just like it's a challenge for toxicology, just the toxicological analysis, isn't it? Yes, it is, especially with the rate of turnover and uh, new substances coming about. We've had to sort of stay ahead of the game, um, figuring out what drug standards we need to order, what drug standards we need to incorporate into our methods, because we want to make sure we're not missing anything. But yeah, surveillance is something that sort of we focused on. Uh, we were able to sort of look at the trends, identifying the different analytes that are emerging, some of these synthetic cathinones that are emerging. Over our study, we got to sort of see the decline of methylone um, and then the rise of uh, other substances like ethylone, dibutylone, and ethylpentylone. So there are other ways, as you said, to sort of monitor the surveillance through drug chemistry data, but we were actually able to do it in real time over the last four years from these collections of actual biological specimens from the users. Set the stage for me a little bit because I've never been to an electronic dance music festival. What does it look like? I'm picturing a lot of psychedelic lights. Yes, yeah, so there is <laughs> truly a, a sight to behold. At most of the festivals, there's upwards of over 100,000 people that are coming in and out, so very big. But you'll see, like you said, these psychedelic lights, huge stages and screens, some abstract figures or like art pieces that people focus on. At the one festival, they had sort of like this dome that had, it must have been gas-powered fire that would go back and forth over the dome that people um, um, Sounds wonderfully safe. Yes, you'll see a lot of furry boots, very scandalous clothing, if you will. Oh, and over acres, this must be that number of people. They're generally pretty big, um, at least a few city blocks long. The other festival was a bunch of open land, so very big, lots of bright colors. The festival that we were able to actually go into, they had a light show where it was like laser lights that pointed out from the stage across over top of the entire audience and they would move. Uh, so the lights would move up and down and it felt like you were moving. Even if you weren't on drugs, it felt like you were in this sort of out of body experience just because everything around you was moving. 
sort of altering your perception of what you were seeing. Sure. So how often would they be actually playing music over the two or three days of the festival? Nonstop. Yep. Nonstop, even finish. at night, even late at night. Yeah. Must so be out in the middle of nowhere, at least I hope it is. <laughs> some of them are. Some of them are in the middle of cities. Some of them are in the, are in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but typically the festivals go anywhere from 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 5 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon, then to 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, depending on whatever sort of ordinances there are <laughs> when you need to sort of turn your music down. Uh, but yeah, it's nonstop music from beginning to end. All of these venues have multiple stages. So depending on where you are, you could be hearing multiple stages at once. Uh, so you really have to be standing in front of the stage you want to stand in front of to actually hear. Because if you stand in the middle, you just get all the sounds from everything and it sounds like a hodgepodge of noise, I guess. <laughs> it's like its own little city. There's food trucks and carnival-like rides and it's interesting, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, electronic dance music fair. Yes. <laughs> no cows though. No Unless cows. Unless you might see one, but probably it's real. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a bracelet kind of format? How does yeah, that so work? For the, uh, for the festivals themselves, they have uh, these sort of high-tech bracelets that have chips in them that you can scan to get in and out of the festivals. Uh, but additionally, people who are among this culture wear these sort of homemade bracelets that are your typical plastic beads that you can buy from any sort of craft store. Um, and they make these beads, they call them candy, not to be confused with the edible type of candy, K-A-N-D-I. And it's sort of their jewelry, their way of sort of interacting with other people, sharing the experience with other people. And it's not really used for bartering or trading off, but they're often traded. Uh, like if I have one bracelet and you have a bracelet, we can share them. So they have like forth. a whole bunch of bracelets on yeah. their arm at the same yep. time? That's yeah, so their whole arm can be filled with maybe 10 to 20 uh, 30 more all the way up their arm with all these different colorful bracelets. They're often yellow, green, all these different colors that are very vibrant. Um, and a lot of times they'll have different words on them that can correlate to either what drugs they are using, what drugs they're looking to buy, or what drugs they're looking to sell. So some we've seen have the word bump on them, some have the word MDMA on them, and then some have other wording that means something within the culture that we're not too uh, familiar with, but means something to, again, the people that are within their culture that see these bracelets on their arms, and they can say either, I want to trade with you, I want to sell drugs to you, I want to buy drugs from you, I want to do uh, whatever with you. Um, some of them are sexually referenced, but the majority of them, I would say, are pretty much uh, have some sort of drug reference or some sort of, sort of jewelry-like effect. And to exchange bracelets, there's this whole process. So you find the person that you want to exchange bracelets with, and it goes peace. The two people put their two fingers together. Then you make a heart with love. Then you clasp your fingers together, unity, and then you swap bracelets and respect. Okay. And it ends with a hug. So that's yeah. kind of cool. And they call it plur. <coughs> plur. Peace, love, unity, respect. Yep. Okay. That's pretty cool. Because we deal with this at RTI, and just in full disclosure, RTI does an awful lot of work with readers and NMS Labs, which is where you all are from. And Barry Logan, of course, is uh, well-known in the toxicology community. Um, and one of the things that we've certainly encountered is that there are limitations with the oral fluid collection devices. For example, you know, the stability, uh, stabilizing some of these substances in the oral fluid, and there's all sorts of problems that can occur with respect to sampling and that kind of thing. So what did you do for oral fluid sampling, and how did you overcome those issues? Uh, sure. So that was something we really brainstormed a lot about, how we were going to preserve the samples on site and make sure that, you know, it's 
sunny and 100 degrees out, how are we going to maintain the integrity of these samples and not let them sit out? So we came up with a protocol that we would get dry ice every day. So as soon as samples were collected, they were stored on dry ice while we were at the festivals. Then we shipped them back to our facility and then they were put in a minus 80 freezer. So. I mean, I think it worked out really well yeah. from our perspective as that was a good approach in how to not necessarily have to worry about stability and things like that. What kind of uh, sample tube was it? What did it? We were using the Quantasols okay. from Immunalysis. Mm -hmm. Did you do any work looking at what recovery was like out of those as well? We did do some initial work um, when we were setting up the original validations that evaluated recovery um, mm -hmm. for those analytes. Yeah, so um, with those collection devices, so it's a sort of a cotton <laughs> swab that goes into the mouth and then gets put into three uh, milliliters of buffer. So we tried to take all the precautions to get all the liquid and get all the drug off of that pad. I mean, there were some limitations to that, things that we sort of are sort of out of our control. But we do think that uh, at least the protocol that we used for sort of removing as much of that liquid that we could through centrifugation or whatever did recover the majority of that drug for us to make sure that we had that for then the analysis. So how much did you uh, look at it from a qualitative versus a quantitative perspective? I mean, were you trying to get drug levels as well as presence or how did that work? Yeah, so we had developed both uh, qualitative and quantitative methods uh, for analysis. So um, we did develop a sort of a dual uh, liquid chromatography, quadruple time of flight mass spectrometry method that we could qualitatively confirm the presence of these different drugs in the oral fluid specimens. And then we also developed quantitative procedures for THC and a bunch of the different novel stimulants. So uh, since we were focusing on the novel stimulants, we made it a priority to uh, develop and update and validate methods as these new substances came about so we could get that real-time quantitative data. Exactly what those quantitative values mean, I think, is something that's still unclear, and uh, Mandy can sort of attest to the data that we've had on that. But Sure. So in the original proposal, it was the collection of blood, urine, and oral fluid. So we're getting all three different matrices. We were able to correlate the blood, urine, and oral fluid as we got some samples from all individuals, or one particular person gave all three samples. So we did some correlation work as what's reported in the literature. There's not a real strong correlation between the blood and the oral fluid with respect to concentrations, but what we did see was a good agreement between the specimens, meaning things we were finding in the blood were also what we were finding in the oral fluid, and then maybe some additional substances in urine, which wasn't unexpected because you have that longer detection window in the urine, so you know past use may show up in the urine. So in general, you were able to get a fairly decent population of people with these festivals <laughs> to give you oral fluid. Yeah. Over the course of the four years that we've been collecting at these different sites, um, we've had over 1,200 people that have provided us with at least one biological specimen. So we've had really great success. So let's, let's take a step back and just think about, first of all, Electronic Dance Music Festival. And I, I'm sorry to be a fuddy-duddy. I don't know what's going on. I, I understand kind of what this means. So is there like a reputation for electronic dance music festivals that there's a lot of drug use going on there historically? Yes. So if you look into the literature, it's been reported at sort of like the rave and club type atmospheres that anywhere from up to 70% of attendees are using some sort of recreational drug. 
This was also sparked by the fact that within media, there was a lot of reports of drug-related overdoses and fatalities at these events, in particular because it's a hot environment, they're taking these recreational substances, they're not well hydrated, so there was a lot of fatalities associated with these events in particular. I think one festival up in New York City, the after I think there was 10 or so overdoses, the mayor like canceled the event, shut it down, and so we thought this would be a good population where we could really dive in and look into what's being used. And a lot of the festivals now have changed some of their strategies about having zero drug tolerance policies, which they say, but they've also increased in the presence of emergency personnel. So they have teams that kind of walk through the festivals and look for people who might be having adverse events. They now now all have hydration stations, water for free. I think before one of the festivals ended where there was a fatality, water was like $10 for a bottle of water, so obviously no one's drinking water. It's generally two to three day events. And you're collecting not only at the front end but throughout the event. Yeah, and that was one of the really interesting findings. You can see the increase in positivity by day. So Friday night when people are coming, you know, there's very low positivity. By Saturday, you have more positives, and by Sunday, virtually a significant portion of the people we got samples from were positive. Sure. Did you do any incentive work? And again, one of the things that I remember for this is the Resty Drug Abuse Monitoring Program used to give a chocolate bar to the Restys. Did you have to incentivize people to, to donate, or how'd that work? You know, surprisingly, we used peer recruiters, so we used students from local universities to come help and like solicit people's participation. But what was really effective was just asking, hey, are you guys interested in helping science? And mm -hmm. we got an overwhelming positive response to that. Like People were like, yeah. People love science, yeah. just science. Yes. <laughs> um, so that was worked really well. And then for when we were doing blood, urine, and oral fluid collection, uh, if participants donated all three specimens, they were given a $20 gift card. And then irrespective of what specimens were donated, everyone got candy and glow sticks and water. OK. So, and then you also did a survey for them? What did you ask them in terms of the survey work? Yeah, so after we collected the biological specimens, uh, we asked them sort of a structured survey. Uh, the first two questions were, what is your age? What is your gender? And then we went into recreational or medicinal drug use. So if they responded that they had taken uh, any sort of drug in the last week, we then prompted them with questions such as, how much did you take? What method of ingestion did you use? How did you feel? How long ago did you take this substance? Sometimes they would give responses to those questions, and then sometimes they would go off and tell us stories about more detailed how they felt, where they were taking the drugs, who they were taking them with, um, where they purchased them, what they looked like. Uh, did you capture that data? Yes, we did. So sometimes if they would tell us, uh, we had some people tell us, oh, I took an ecstasy tablet that was white and had an ace of spades on it. So we did collect that information and tried to compare it. If we had any similar responses, the most common response we had was the orange Tesla tablet. Um, and that's something that has been reported to have 230 milligrams of MDMA in it, or over yeah. 230 milligrams. Um, that's a very, very high amount. So we did record all that information and sort of tried to pair up positivity based on uh, those uh, survey responses. Not related to either the uh, car or the famous scientist. So it is the, the it is the Tesla logo <laughs> from the car company. Is it really? Okay. Uh, but yes, I, I think that there's zero correlation between the yeah. pills and the company. That's interesting because that's a, that's a very rich data set just from a social science perspective as well. Did you correlate their self-report with the toxicological data then? Yes, so we took that survey information. Really one of our main goals was to compare 
ecstasy, molly, and MDMA responses with analytical findings, but we did it sort of across all different drug classes. Our number one response uh, was marijuana use. That was something that we weren't too surprised about. But our second survey response was the combination of any ecstasy, molly, and or MDMA use. And something that was very interesting was the difference in responses between what the users considered ecstasy, molly, or MDMA. We had some users say, I took molly and MDMA. And it's very interesting to sort of get their perspective on what the distinction is between those two combinations. We did compare those responses with positive analytical findings for MDMA, MDA, and then all the different novel stimulants, whether methylone, ethylone, dimethylone, uh, dibutylone, and ethylpentylone, any of those cathinones. Sure. Well, in the ATOM data, it's like clockwork over many, many years, like about half the arrestees, either they're lying or they just report because they don't remember about their drug use. So they'll say right. that, I mean, obviously, almost always it's that they deny drug use when, in fact, their urine will come up positive even if they know it's gonna be sample. I assume you had a fair percentage of people who did not report usage that you then detected. Right, yes, we did have a lot of respondents that would say they had not used any drugs in the last week. Uh, we wouldn't pry for that information if that's what they told us, that's sort of what we went with. But we did have a substantial number of positives for people who said they were not using drugs. But for our study, we were sort of dependent on what the survey responses we were getting. Um, that wasn't uh, information, obviously, that we were trying to pry out of them. It was just sort of whatever they were open to telling us, whatever information they were willing to give us as the part of the study. So how many festivals did you all go to? So we went to one festival for four years, and then we added an additional two festivals. So in total, we've attended six festivals. Okay. So one of the things I noticed, and confirm this or not, is that I'm not seeing a whole lot with respect to opioids, actually, in this population. Is that, and that's specific to this population? Is it very different from others? Yes. As I said earlier, they're looking for that euphoria. They want to go and they want to be able to, you know, rock out all night long sure. and party hard. And if you see these festivals, I mean, they're tailored towards that kind of environment. They have, like, really abstract pieces and all the lights and, like, the techno music. So it really sets a stage for a mind-altering experience with a couple of pops of a pill. It, you know, you sure. can really... It's not a Timothy Leary situation. There's no LSD and things like that in the population. Actually, surprisingly, they're in the last festival that we did, there were a lot of people who went back to saying they were taking LSD, which was oh. surprising. So it seems like that's something that they're kind of reverting back to. I think when you talk to the users, they don't want these substituted cathinones. They actually are looking for pure MDMA because there's so many adverse events with the cathinones that they're looking for MDMA. And so maybe it's a shift back towards traditional hard drugs like LSD, you know, where they're less likely to be substituted or adulterated. But you can also see now, if you look across the trends, the synthetic cathinones, you know, turned over pretty quickly. And now there's just a huge spike in positivity for MDMA. So it looks like the market really has shifted back towards MDMA. And we saw an uptick in LSD. And like I said, all these synthetic cathinones are just virtually falling off. And that goes back to relating to what the users are talking about. They, they don't want these drugs, they want MDMA. Wow, when you're something that's more dangerous than MDMA, then you're in deep trouble, I think. The cathinones, I know, are pretty, pretty dangerous drugs. I know in Hollywood, there's a big thing now about the microdosing of LSD and some of these other kinds of things. I mean, your data was basically qualitative. I mean, but you have the survey data and some levels of being able to see what some of the quant was as well. I mean, are you seeing differences in dosaging here or anything like that that you can tell? 
the user reports, I mean, they're saying they're taking, you know, a few milligrams up to gram dosages. So yeah. it, it is really variable. And we do get people who um, are on sort of that same sort of microdosing scale where they'll get a tablet of ecstasy and they'll break it into, say, four pieces and they'll take one, see how they feel, take a second piece. So we have heard of some of that information. But yeah, like Mandy said, it's just a, a range of how much people are taking. Sometimes the molly is, is described as capsules that are filled with crystals, but sometimes they will vary the amount of crystals that they're taking. They'll only take some now and take some later. Uh, the capsules actually break open apart themselves, so they can literally sort of pour those crystals under their tongue like you would pour like a pixie stick onto your tongue. So that they are doing some of that microdosing. They didn't explicitly explain it to us in that same manner, uh, but that is certainly going on within the population. Now, the synthetic cannabinoids, a lot of folks who have done studies in that area say that they're seeing them laced with fentanyl, but you're not seeing a lot of that in this population, or are you? No, interestingly, I mean, that was something Barry was really surprised by. Uh, we did do testing for synthetic cannabinoids, and there was no positives, not a single positive for synthetic cannabinoids, and he was, you know, wow. are you sure we're testing the right thing? Was our scope right and everything? But even <laughs> talking with the users, they don't like synthetic cannabinoids. It's not something they're looking for. Um, they're like, no, we stay away from that crap. So, so it wasn't geographically, surprised. where were these? Are you able to share that? Um, so we were down in Florida. We did two festivals in Florida, and then we did another one in Georgia. Going back to that recovery, uh, we did have a good number of THC positives. So we were recovering that THC off of the Quantasol pad. So we would assume that if we were seeing the synthetic cannabinoids, I mean, it's all dependent on what the concentrations are, how much there were. We would have expected to see them just based on some of that chemistry. But as Manny said, yeah, we had no, no positives for any synthetic cannabinoids. And we, our screening method had probably anywhere between 30 and 50 synthetic cannabinoids when our testing was being done, how often we were adding standards. And we never saw any of those sort of emerging uh, sink cans in the population. One of the things that you're looking at too is just this, this broader idea. I mean, there's what you're seeing at the music festival, right? But then there's this broader idea of just trying to understand better medical surveillance or drug surveillance kinds of strategies. I mean, do you all have insights with respect to what you think we should be doing as a society to try to understand NPSs better and what's going on? I think uh, it's important to provide education. At one of the festivals, we went back and we took the top five drugs that we had found with respect to synthetic substances, and we made like a little flyer that we gave to the participants as they were going back, and we said, this is what we found last year. Here are some adverse effects associated with these, so it's something you can be on the lookout for. You know, I don't think we're ever going to stop drug use, so doing it responsibly, if there's a way, I think, you know, being alert to, you know, preventing your friend from ODing is better than just saying we don't have a drug problem. Right. Did you see any difference in actual use in those cases? Were you able to give out the pamphlet or was it not a broad enough set of data, do you think? I mean, I don't think that we have enough data, but it is in talking with these people, um, they are very curious. They want to know is what I took, what I thought I took, and they were curious about their data. They were curious in knowing about these adverse events and how do you tell if this tab is actually MDMA or a synthetic cathinone? I think they're interested, and so I think the importance is to be able to educate them and provide them with some of that feedback, and I think we did a good job with that. And I think something that the festivals are sort of realizing now and something that's very important is the hydration. So a lot of different festivals now have free hydration stations. Something that we learned was that they do not provide you with bottles or cups, so you need to bring either your own empty bottle or your own camelback or something like that. But the hydration is very important. I mean, I think that there is certainly a link there between 
dehydration and some of these fits of overdoses and adverse events that are occurring. So I think that providing that water is sort of critical, especially when these festivals are in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the day, in 100 plus degree heat in the south. Even someone who's not taking drugs needs to stay well hydrated. Yeah, I mean, if their body temperature is spiking, then that's going to kill them. And uh, some of these drugs will contribute to that, that's for sure. Right. The festivals have done a good job of implementing kind of safe spaces for people. So if you're having um, an adverse event, you can kind of go into this place where they have advocates that can, you know, kind of help talk you through coming down off your high and just kind of watch over you and make sure that you're safe and something were to go terribly wrong, they have emergency personnel that are there to respond. So. Did you see much difference in terms of usage in the Florida versus the Georgia concerts? Was that pretty much the same or was it? You know, we saw the same uh, use and same positivity throughout all three festivals. So all are in the southeast. Um, we were aware of that geographically, but we really didn't see any differences in terms of MDMA and synthetic cathinone use within those populations. In the festival in Georgia, we did see increased use of LSD, mushrooms, and THC. Uh, but the difference between that festival was it was in a very rural area, relatively far outside of Atlanta. Uh, there really wasn't anything around. Uh, where the music festival was and the music festival allowed camping so we were staying on site uh, it was a little bit more of a camping type feel uh -huh. if you will uh, which i guess can sort of bring some of those drugs along with it so that was about the only difference we saw in terms of three different locations i assume you had to get agreement from the managers of the venues to be able Actually, to be there or not no for the first festival we talked to some of their senior level people and they wanted no part of it we had said, you know, like we're just looking to provide information. It's not an enforcement thing. And they basically told us that we would tarnish their brand if we said they had drug use. And Deaths are fine, yeah. but don't tell us why. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, we said that this would be a way for them to say we're addressing the issue, we're trying to provide data and be realistic about it because they all have zero drug tolerance policies, but that's clearly not the case. But there was a very big difference in sort of the security surrounding the festivals. The second festival we went to in Florida happened right after the Manchester bombing. So there was a very heightened level of security. So that was something that sort of set us back farther from the gates that we would have wanted to be. Uh, the other festival we went to, we were sort of right near the gates. For those two festivals, Miami didn't go into the festivals. So we were outside the festivals. Um, in Atlanta, again, it was also different from the two festivals in Florida, but we were able to actually go into the campgrounds, which was interesting. I'm in a different feel. So the way the logistics were set up about all three festivals is very, very different. And I assume that, the, that people will travel to these just because they're in the southeast. You're getting even an international audience to some degree? I mean, yes. So that was something that was interesting in the festivals kind of in Florida. There was a lot of international presence. So we were thinking we would see some of like the newer compounds coming from international waters into Miami and that's kind of a general route of distribution, you know, comes into Miami and then filtrates out. So that was something we were interested in looking at, you know, how new we were seeing things, but it kind of kept current with the general trends that were seen elsewhere okay. with respect to new compounds. I mean, it's interesting. I didn't think about it from this perspective, but I'm sure this is a business opportunity for many of the people who would be selling those drugs as well. I mean, it's a great way to make your annual living, probably, if you, if you knew what you were doing there. Yeah. Um, and we, we talked to different people. They told all of us their mechanisms of how they send their drugs there. You know, a lot of people have someone that their supplier distributes down there and then they distribute in the festival. So it was really interesting. Yeah, and how they prefer one shipping method over another, 
where they put their drugs within a package. Uh, one of the attendees told us he put his pills into peanut butter and thought that that would get through, but his package arrived, the peanut butter jar, and the pills were taken out of the peanut butter jar. So Okay. Yeah, it was very interesting. We got a, <laughs> we got a whole bunch of different stories like that, just of different methods of uh, sort of getting their drugs to the, to the site, because a lot of them, as you said, are traveling. They're flying in. They're not going to take them through TSA onto an airplane, so they are shipping them, uh, whether it be through the different mailing companies. And so you're seeing variation from day to day in the actual like presence of the uh, of the different drugs. I guess a lot depends on trying to understand. Is that dependence because things are changing in terms of supply, or because people are just ingesting over time, or do you have any feel for what's going on there? My personal opinion would be that I think a lot of you know people come to this festival and you know they're planning on drinking alcohol or whatever it may be, but it's just that environment that really allows them to experience these different cultures. It's kind of not promoted in a sense, but you know their friends are doing it and their friends are doing it too, and everyone else is doing it, so I'll do it. So if everyone else is doing it, why not you too? You know. I think we're too seeing uh, potentially some residual positives maybe from the night before or depending on how late they were up and what time we're collecting the samples the next day. Um, and typically on Friday, people attending the festival may be coming from work, so mm -hmm. probably not using their drugs at work yet. We might be catching them before uh, they've started ingesting any of those substances before they go in. So. Right. What are you uh, looking at next? Are you wrapping up the NIJ award or do you have more that you can do under the NIJ award or what's your next follow-up? This is something we didn't put in for funding yet but we've kind of postulated about trying to do some on-site testing with respect to the actual drug material. So that would be something or trying to get access. A lot of these events have amnesty bins so before you go into the festival, if you're, says a drug-free festival, if you have drugs, drop them here in this amnesty bin, nothing will happen to you, you know, you're good to go. Um, trying to get access to those amnesty bins and looking at actual the pills, powders, crystals, and characterizing them. So those were a couple of things that we've thought about and, you know, I think this is a really valuable population because there's such high rates of recreational drug use and I think we've established ourselves within these populations. We've developed kind of a reputation that, you know, we're here to provide information and we're being a resource. We're not here to say like drugs are bad and, you know, we're the police and we're going to arrest you. But I think going back to a festival, we've toyed around with the idea of attending another festival this year, self-funded, just so that we can keep up with the data. Uh, where have you published so far? You, Of course, as, as I mentioned, you gave a presentation at the NIJ Research Symposium yesterday, which will be archived and available to folks uh, on the Forensic COE website. But where else can you get more information? What kind of things are you publishing out? Because it's a rich data set. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can look at this with. So we've published in Forensic Science International. There was a article that was based on the 2014-2015 data set. Alex has published a couple of papers in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology with respect to uh, drug and drug metabolism with some of these novel stimulants that we detected. Mm -hmm. We're in the process of writing up a couple of different papers. One is relating the MDMA, Molly, and ecstasy based on what the user said and what their analytical data said. So that's coming together. I think you we have a draft version of that paper. Yep. 
And then we also are going to do kind of the trends. So what did we see across four years? The site in Miami, what do we see in general? Like the positivity, increased positivity by day. We looked at are there differences in between males and females with respect to Molly and MDMA use? Is there any trend with respect to different age groups? And so we'll be publishing that data as well. Well, I think it's a fantastic set of studies. You're very, very, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to be, uh, to be participating in. And great job on, on the research. I can't wait to see what comes next from you all. Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely have to give a shout out to NIJ for funding this study because from what we were told, our study, a lot of people looked at it and scoffed at yeah. uh, this idea that we would be able to get uh, samples from these drug users and, you know, maybe get a couple. And I think over the course of four years, getting over 1,200 samples is far exceeded any of their expectations. So, you know, shout out to them for funding us for a couple Taking of rounds. Taking the risk. Yeah. yeah. And on something that's longitudinal, it's not necessarily like, always same individual, you have a little bit of that, right? right. But it's a, definitely a longitudinal study, which is really unusual for NIJ to do that. Yes. For those of you who are listening uh, to the podcast, please subscribe. Please tell all of your friends and colleagues to, uh, to listen to Just Science as well. Thank you, uh, Alex, and thank you, Mandy, for being on the program. Yeah. Thanks for thank having you. us. Next week on Just Science, we will discuss NIJ-funded research, liver doesn't die, or at least its enzymes. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Mm -hmm.